Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 53. If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 885. As you can tell from the reading this morning, we come to the end of what has been an extended study of Luke's Gospel, a study which began on June 30th, 2013. Obviously, we haven't spent every Sunday since in Luke's Gospel, but uh, while we have taken breaks for Easter or for Christmas or for an occasional sermon or a short series here and there, we have devoted the better part of the last five years to working through Luke's Gospel, paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse, and sometimes even word by word, 165 sermons in all. And I believe it is most fitting in God's providence that we come to the conclusion of this study on the day when we are celebrating our 20th anniversary. In the opening verses of Acts, Luke, Luke's second volume, the, the sequel to his gospel, Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up. Think for a moment about the implication of Luke's phrasing. He says that in his first book, the, the book uh, of Luke, the, the Gospel of Luke, that he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That phrasing clearly implies that in his second book, the, the book of Acts, he will deal with all that Jesus continued to do and to teach even after his ascension. You see, Jesus' ascension, which we will see this morning, it was not the end of his ministry. Much as we call a, a graduation ceremony a commencement because it is the beginning of a new stage of life, so Jesus' ascension was a commencement. It was the beginning of a new stage of his ministry. And our 20 years here as a particular congregation of Christ's church are a part of that story, the, the story of Jesus' continuing ministry. As we will see this morning, since the day that he was taken up, Jesus has been at work through his Spirit-empowered disciples building his church. And Trinity is one small fruit of his labor. And he isn't finished. Jesus himself said at the end of Matthew's Gospel that this stage of his ministry would carry on until the end of the age. That is why we have borrowed a phrase from Luke saying that today, as we celebrate our 20th anniversary, it is a celebration of what Jesus has begun to do. We are deeply thankful for the good work that Jesus has done in and through us these past 20 years. But at the same time, we are eager to see the work that He will do here at Trinity and beyond in the years and even generations to come. And so this morning, in our final study of Luke's Gospel, I want us to hear Jesus' call to be instruments in His 
ongoing work. Let us read it together. Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 44, reading to the end of the gospel. This is the very word of God. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father, we come before you this morning asking that you would remember your promise not to allow your word to return void. But Father, may you work through it this morning by your spirit to build your church and to equip us for your service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, when Jesus parted from his disciples and was carried up into heaven. It was not the end of his ministry, but rather the beginning of a new stage. Barring language from John Murray's famous theology textbook, we might call the two stages of his ministry redemption accomplished and redemption applied. The first stage of of Jesus' ministry should be called redemption accomplished. We, We see this in verse 44. Jesus says to his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Before he was Betrayed, before he was arrested and condemned and and crucified, Jesus had repeatedly told his disciples not only that all these things would happen, but that they must happen. They must happen to fulfill everything that had been written about him in the Old Testament scriptures. This emphasis upon fulfillment teaches us that that Jesus' suffering, the the, the suffering that culminated in his death upon the cross, that it was all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, as Peter puts it on the day of Pentecost. As we saw a few weeks ago, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, immediately following Adam's treasonous rebellion when he ate the forbidden fruit, that that rebellion that, that brought sin and death into the world, that brought God's curse down upon all of creation. Immediately after Adam had rebelled, God made a promise. He promised to reconcile mankind to himself. He he promised to undo the works of the devil and to restore the original intended goodness of all creation. 
And the entire Old Testament from that point forward is the story of God's enduring faithfulness to that promise. But despite God's faithfulness, the Old Testament ends with the promise still unfulfilled. The fulfillment only comes in the person of Jesus. This is why his birth was announced by the angels as good news of great joy for all people. This is why when Simeon first saw the baby Jesus, he declared, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This is why John the baptizer prepared the people for for Jesus' public ministry by saying, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight His paths for all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's why Jesus Himself, after reading the promises recorded in Isaiah 61, said to the people, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were the climactic fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. These events were redemption accomplished. This was the work that secured the salvation of sinners. But redemption accomplished is not the end of the story. Because redemption accomplished is itself not enough. God promised more than to make salvation available. God promised to save for Himself a people. And therefore, the accomplished redemption must be applied to all God's people. And it is this second stage of Jesus' ministry that He begins to describe in verse 47. Look again at the text. Notice in verse 46, Jesus summarizes the redemption accomplished stage of his ministry. He he says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's redemption accomplished. And his use of the word should indicates to us that, that Jesus' death and resurrection were absolutely necessary, that they were an essential part of God's plan of redemption. Without his death and resurrection, there would be no salvation. But now look at verse 47. He again uses the word should, this time in reference to the application of redemption. He says, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins, or or some of your translations might have repentance and the forgiveness of sins, should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Should. This this proclamation should. It is an essential part of, of God's plan. God's plan of salvation has two stages. Accomplishment and application. And these correspond to the two stages of, of Jesus' ministry. The gospel that we have been studying since 2013 tells us the story of redemption accomplished. But now the book of Acts begins to tell the story of all that Jesus would continue to do and to teach in the application of redemption. And I say it tells us what he would begin to do because that is the work that is going on even now, that he he will continue to do even to the end of the age. It is the work that our story is but 
apart. And this morning, in these verses before us, I want us to see that Jesus is going to work through us. He's going to accomplish this work. He's going to apply redemption through his disciples. And there's a way that he is going to do it. Let's look at what he has to teach us about our call to be instruments in his hands as he does his work of applying redemption. The fact that he's going to use us is obvious stated in the fact that all of this takes place after Jesus' ascension. Redemption applied is Jesus' work, but it is the work that Jesus continues to do after he is taken up into heaven. And the obvious implication is that he is going to work through his disciples. Yes, it is Jesus' work, but he works through the work of his people. This was clearly Paul's understanding of his own ministry. Think of what Paul writes at the end of Colossians chapter 1. He says, for this, and he's he's talking about his labors of, of preaching the gospel in order to present everyone mature in Christ. He says, for this I toil, for this I struggle with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul knew that what he was doing was hard work. He knew that he was laboring. He knew that he was toiling. He knew that he was struggling in the service of his Lord. But he also knew that all of his labors were Jesus' work through him. He knew that it was Jesus' immeasurable strength that was powerfully at work in and through him. His work was Jesus' work. And as the first thing that we need to see here, the the work of building the church is Jesus' work that he does through us, through his disciples. Secondly, and directly related to this, we, we see the role that we are to play. Jesus designates his disciples as witnesses. He says, you are witnesses of these things. And so Jesus' disciples will do Jesus' work as Jesus' witnesses. Now, of course, there's a sense in which those first disciples were witnesses in a way that later disciples could never be. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly ministry. They had seen redemption accomplished with their own eyes. Obviously, later disciples could not be witnesses in this sense. But they could and they were witnesses in another sense. A witness is one who testifies to the truth of certain events. In this case, Jesus' disciples testify to the truth of his death and resurrection. And later disciples could give such testimony. They they often did did give such testimony, even with their own blood. It's why we call them martyrs. A martyr is a witness. It's the word that actually Jesus uses here. He, He speaks to his disciples as martyrs, not meaning that they are all going to die, but meaning that they are going to bear witness. And later disciples would give the same testimony, testifying to the the truth of the lordship of the resurrected Christ. And so while not all disciples can be all eyewitnesses and why not all disciples are called to be martyrs in the sense of laying down their lives, all disciples 
can and are called to testify to the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is, in fact, our calling today. It is only as we are witnesses that God will work through us in Christ by His Spirit to build His church. And so Jesus' disciples are instruments of Jesus' work by being witnesses to Jesus' work. But this then brings us to our third point. What is the the content? We've already said it. There is a content to this testimony. We sometimes call it a testimony when a disciple tells the story of God's work in their own life. It might be the story of their initial conversion. It might be the story of how God set them free from some sort of bondage or how He provided for them in some difficult circumstance. It is good to tell those stories. It is good to praise God for the great things that He has done in our lives. We give you the opportunity to do that at our Thanksgiving service each year. Maybe we should do it more often. What I want you to hear this morning is that while it is good to tell those stories, that is not the sort of testimony that Jesus has in mind when he calls us to be his witnesses. Look again at verse 48. Notice what Jesus says. He says, you are witnesses of these things. What things? Clearly, he was referring to his own death and resurrection. Jesus witnesses testify to the truth of redemption accomplished. It is good to to tell our own stories. It is good to praise God for the things that He has done in our lives. But as His witnesses, we must tell His story. We must tell the story of His death and resurrection. It is through the good news of what He has done that Jesus works today to build His church. Again, we see this in the Apostle Paul who who tells us boldly that he preached not himself, but Christ crucified. But it's not enough merely to recount the historical facts. Yes, we we must tell the story of, of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is essential. There is no gospel without the facts. But we must also call people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the fourth point. Now there is some debate here regarding Luke's original wording. You you may see it reflected in the, the various translations you have in front of you. Some have repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Some have repentance and the forgiveness of sins. I don't think the difference much matters. Either way. A response is called for, namely, repentance. When the the good news of, of redemption accomplished is preached, those who are preaching it are to call their hearers to repentance, and they are to call them with a promise, a promise, namely, of the forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus' work of applying redemption requires his disciples to do both. to to proclaim the historical facts, and to call people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. First, they must call for the response of repentance. This is the only appropriate response to, to Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Repentance is that change of mind that, that leads to a change of life. Our confessional standards define repentance as a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, there's the, the change of mind. He, he's begun to, to see his sin for what it is. He, he no longer cherishes it, but has come to, to hate it. He's come to see his sin as that which leads to death. And so a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, but it's not just that his mind has been changed about his sin, because it goes on to say, and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. He has come to see God differently in Christ. He's come to see God as a, as a loving God who so loves the world that He gives His own Son that, that those who have rebelled against Him might not perish. And so a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does turn from his sin to God with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. This is what we are calling people to. We, we are calling them to, to re-examine their sin and to, to re-examine Christ, to, to see their sin for what it is and to see Christ for who He is. And when we begin to see our sin as that which leads to death, when we begin to see Christ as the one who comes to, to give us life, that change of mind can only lead to a change of life. We must turn from death to God to receive from him the blessing of forgiveness. This is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And when we bear witness to our Lord and Savior, when we testify to the truth of his death and resurrection, this is what we do. We, we call people to repentance and to faith. And notice, we do this for all nations. This promise of the gospel is for whosoever believes. The gospel is not for some, it is for all. This is exactly the point that, that Jesus is making when he refers to all nations, echoing all the way back to Abraham. Remember when God chose Abraham and said that, that the Savior would come through his line, even at that moment, God said, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. You see, God never called Abraham that he might save only a, a small segment of his people. But rather, he saved Abraham that through Abraham, blessings might flow as far as the curse is found. That his blessing might flow to all people. And don't miss the wonder of that last little phrase, beginning from Jerusalem. If there should have been anyone excluded from the hope of the gospel. It should have been those in Jerusalem who had murdered Jesus with the help of lawless men. Jesus had come to his own, and his own had rejected him. Not only had they rejected him, they had betrayed him into the hands of the Romans and had him put to death. If any should have been beyond the reach of the gospel, it should have been those in Jerusalem but Jesus says even they are not excluded. The hope of the gospel is for them too. If they will repent, if they will turn to God in faith, as many did on the day of Pentecost, they too will be saved. 
And this is truly good news, not only for them, but for all of us. For I know that there have been times in your life where you have thought, my sins have put me beyond the reach of God's grace. God must be finished with me. He must be done with me. Jesus says it is not so. If you will repent, if you will turn to Him in faith, if you will rest upon Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, the gospel will cover your sins. The gospel will turn away the wrath of God. The blood of Jesus Christ shed will secure for you eternal life in the coming kingdom. That is the gospel. And it is for you this morning. And it is for all those who God has providentially woven into your life. There is no one in your life who is beyond the reach of the gospel. There is no one in your life to whom you cannot proclaim that if you will turn to the risen Savior, He will save you. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's with that bold message that we can take the gospel into Cleveland and into Etowah and even beyond to build the church of Christ, knowing that it is Jesus who works in and through us. But notice... Even though we proclaim a a glorious message, it is a divisive message. People must repent to be saved. The promise of the gospel is offered freely to all, but it is only those who respond in faith who will receive this salvation. That's what John says in his gospel. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Whoever does not believe remains under the wrath of God. He will receive from God on that day the just punishment of his sins. And this is why we are sometimes hesitant to proclaim this good news that has been entrusted to us. We, we know, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that while to some this is an aroma of life to life, To others it is an aroma from death to death. It's a weighty message. This isn't like talking about the football game on Saturday. This is sober. This is weighty. And we wonder who is sufficient to be a minister of such a gospel. Paul himself wondered. And the clear answer that he expected was, No one. Certainly not us. We are not sufficient to the task to which we have been called. But if we're not sufficient for the work that we've been given to do, how is it that that work has been accomplished? How has Christ's church grown through the centuries? How is it growing even today throughout the world? Or to put it more personally, how is Trinity still here 20 years later? And why do we look with any sort of confidence on the next 20 years? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, answering his own question, he writes, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers 
of a new covenant. You are not sufficient in yourself. Paul was not sufficient in himself. But in Christ, we are sufficient, even as Paul was sufficient, to do the work that he has given us to do. This is exactly what Jesus is promising in verse 49. Look again, he says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus, of course, is talking about the Holy Spirit, the the, the gift of the, the Father promised to His people. A promise that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the ascended Lord poured out His Spirit upon His church. And it has been in the power of the Spirit that the church has been growing ever since. So let's think about what we've seen here this morning. We've seen that while Jesus' ascension was the end of the first stage of His ministry, what we've called redemption accomplished, it was also the beginning of redemption applied, the the second stage of His ministry. And we've seen that in that second stage of ministry, Jesus works through his disciples, whom he calls witnesses. And he works through them as they testify to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and call people to faith and repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. We readily admit that that we are not sufficient for this work. But according to Jesus' promise, we have been clothed with power from on high to do the work that we've been given to do. This is the story of Christ's church. This is the story of Trinity. In the early 90s, Jesus opened the minds of a small group of believers to to understand the Scriptures better than they had before. And they became witnesses in Cleveland. And through their spirit-empowered labors, Trinity was established some 20 years ago. And since that day, Jesus has continued to work through His disciples, clothed with power from on high, as they have faithfully proclaimed Christ crucified and risen, calling people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins and teaching them to walk in that repentance daily. That is our story. That's what we're here to celebrate. And even as we celebrate it, it is our sure and certain hope that Jesus will continue this good work for years to come, even generations to come, if He so tarries. He will continue to work in and through us as we continue in humble reliance upon the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit to witness to His death and resurrection and to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in His name, here in Cleveland, in Etowah, and even to the ends of the earth as He gives us opportunity. And because the God who calls us is faithful, we know that He will surely do it. That is why today is a celebration of what Jesus has begun to do. Let us pray. Father God, we rejoice in Your goodness to us. We thank You for Your grace. And we ask that you would indeed make us sufficient for the work that you have given us to do, 
so that your work of applying the redemption accomplished by Christ might go forth here in Cleveland and even beyond as you give us opportunity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.